Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. When the massive disruptions happen in life, as we're seeing right now, it is the brands and the category that have meaning that create non-financial values with their customers that I think end up lasting. And so... The more that you can create that other source of value, I think that creates long-term meaning that is critical in crises, that's like a North Star during confusing moments which every company is gonna run through. And ultimately, like, we'll let your work be meaningful and not just like, we're trying to swizz, we're trying to make some more money at the widget factory today. You know, when your job gets that abstracted, it's, it's, it's hard to get excited. Yeah, and so how do you, this all assumes somebody has core values. And now I'm not saying if you're without core values, I'm not saying you're immoral or anything. You just maybe never sat down and thought about, hey, what what is future me that I'm aiming for? I've been so much just trying to survive. And now here in this quarantine, I was just fired and I got to do this. How do you, how does someone who's hasn't built that muscle exercise it and build it? So happy to welcome to the podcast, Yancey Strickler, who, if you don't know who he is, he is the founder and former CEO of Kickstarter, which I'll let him describe more accurately, but it's basically, if you have a project, like an artistic project, a creative project, mil millions of kinds of projects, you can get your initial funding or, or money to support this project on Kickstarter. And I also view Kickstarter as not only a great place to raise money for an idea that you have, but it's a great way to see if an idea is good. Is there an audience for an idea that you have? So sometimes the goal of starting a Kickstarter project should not be to raise money, but to see, hey, can I get thousands of people to pre-acquire my project, whether it's an art project or furniture you're making or a concert you want to give, like, uh, whatever. And also I just want to add, we're going to be talking about this quite extensively. Yancey is also the author of a, a, a great new book. Uh, this could be our future kind of, it's kind of like the future of capitalism and it's particularly important and, and it gives a new way, a kind of value driven way or values driven way of looking at a company or an entrepreneurial project 
and, and so on. And it's particularly important in this day and age of lockdown and coronavirus, where I think a lot of values about consumerism and and maximalism are, are beginning to change. And we'll see if they actually change. But sorry for the long intro, Yancey. Welcome to the podcast. I'm just thank you. I'm just furiously nodding along with everything you're saying there. Uh, to- totally agree. I mean, especially. Uh, especially how you talk about Kickstarter as not just getting funding, but as that way of the public letting you know whether you're crazy or not to think that your idea is worth doing. I mean, at at the very beginning, we were, um, so there are three co-founders of Kickstarter, Perry Chen, who first had the idea, Charles Adler and myself. And at the very beginning, we're very driven by this idea that as a creative person or as any kind of person, like you're stuck pitching your idea to executives, to a small group of people who are looking for, you know, looking to make an investment. Um, and, but most often creative ideas, you know, maybe they're going to make money if you're lucky. Um, and those sorts of ideas are just totally blocked. And you as a, as an artist, as a creative person, and, and I've certainly been there, you get stuck with this idea that you believe in but you don't know, how do I, how do I know whether it's real or not? And you like drive your family and your friends crazy with talking about it, but like, how do you take that step? And and that step is really tough. It's, it's scary. And so what we imagine for Kickstarter is like, this is the way that people can just like proudly, you know, with, with all their dignity, like stand up and say, here's my idea. Here's a way to be a part of it. It's not about charity. It's about making something together. And and it's letting every creative person, every entrepreneur, just get so much more information about do people actually care or not? Um, because it's, you know, the, the the challenge of of sticking too long on an idea that ultimately people aren't going to go for is uh, is a really tough place to find yourself. So the more you can accelerate that that learning of just getting other information, uh, I think it's helpful. So even if a Kickstarter project, quote unquote, fails that is still valuable information. It says, hey, go back to the drawing board. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. I view, uh, first off, a lot of people think in terms of if I have an idea, it should be a, co- a tech company and I should get venture capital funding for it. Those are kind of like, we, we've sort of limited ourselves, you know, society-wide that the only good ideas are these ideas that could be like Uber and make $100 billion. And then you need venture capitalists, which is a specific type of person who will validate your idea. They want to make hundred billion dollars too. So I, I, I always think in terms of experiments and the way you were just describing it as the end, creating a Kickstarter project is like doing an experiment. Here's uh, an idea I have for a, a toilet and it's very unique and very innovative. It's a toilet that uh, senses your body temperature and and you know tells you if you have coronavirus or whatever and will other people is it this is i i you know and i always say people have smoking crack bias so at first when you have an idea you're 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 constantly smoking crack and you think it's the best but kickstarter is a good way to say hey everybody here's uh uh an implementation of my idea i made one should i make a, a bunch more and then the crowd and this is where crowdfunding started with kickstarter the crowd will tell you through through their money and, and they give money at different tiers and there's different awards for each tier, the crowd will tell you if it's a good idea or not. And it's a great experiment. Like you said, if it fails, well, that's incredibly valuable because then you know not to make your smart toilet at scale and you can move on to the next project. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
What's interesting is that, you know, Kickstarter, as we're speaking today, today is Kickstarter's 11th birthday. Uh, so oh in 2000, 2009, Kickstarter launched. And, you know, at the time there had been crowdfunding experiments before, but nothing had really worked, nothing had broken through. And, and we, Kickstarter did. Um, and early on, it definitely had that experimental phase of just like really cool people doing it. And let me just see how this works and trying stuff out. And as the site gained in popularity and became, you know, one of the most famous websites on the internet, and once there were projects making millions of dollars, became like the people's lottery ticket, like this thing where anybody could get a million dollars overnight for an idea. I mean, like nothing like that had existed before. And so this like experimental place shifted into this place with higher stakes for a while where, you know, bigger name people were using it. Um, and just there was a more professionalization of the platform that is really an interesting challenge for any kind of platform because you, you know, maybe you're getting bet, quote unquote better projects um, and like the, the everything is growing, but yet it's raising the bar in such a way that maybe the experimentation that you imagined as being the um, what the site would be all about becomes harder because there's like this social pressure and people don't want to fail and it means something to do a Kickstarter. And, mm. and so just watching even how um, those, those energies change as a, as a community changes. Um, and especially, you know, we saw this with like the Apple App Store where you have like Flappy Bird breaks out and it's like, wow, anyone can make a game. Look at how look at look at how like amateur games can break through, and then that was kind of like the last moment that ever happened. Right. You know. Then it just got so professionalized. It's like, no, there will never be something like Flappy Bird again. Um, and so it's just funny how these marketplaces and platforms evolve with sort of this race to the top of you know just more and more professional um, practices becoming normalized. And and you know. Do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions about Kickstarter? Because no, I, I do, and, and a lot of it is related to your book because you mentioned there were other attempts at crowdfunding. They didn't quite work out. And I think a lot of the success of Kickstarter is due to your kind of core philosophy about business, which you express in this book. But like, what, what do you think caused Kickstarter to not only succeed, but become one of the most popular websites out there? I mean, it's, it's, Kickstarter is almost synonymous with crowdfunding right now. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, um, I think that we provided a door where a door was needed and no one realized it. You know, I think, I think we were, you know, the notion of um, creative people need a direct way to speak to their audiences and, and that they can be trusted to facilitate their own exchanges, um, I think was like a big, um, just, just so much, just, just, there's a power in the platform. Uh, but in terms of what made Kickstarter itself stand out, I think it's it was the discrete focus on creative projects. So we mm. saw when Perry first had the idea, and no investing. There's no investing, and there's no like, investing, right? Like all the award, the awards are not allowed to be equity. Correct, correct. Yeah, there's no financial upside, so no one's. We're not. We don't want anyone to put on their business hat when they're looking at a project. We just want them to react and say, "This is cool," or "That creator seems nice," or you know, they work. They seem like they're working really hard. Whatever, whatever those other qualities might be. Uh, but you know, so Kickstarter's focused just on creative projects, and from the beginning, we saw that like you could buy Jenny a prom dress, you could pay for someone's medical bills, like saw the GoFundMe universe would happen. 
but said from the beginning, we don't want charitable projects on the site. We want uh, for creative people to be able to ask for money. They need a place that brings dignity. They need a place that's not about guilt. They need a place that's about like positively constructing the future. Um, and so we limited it all to projects that were yeah, making something, producing something. We had an internal rule of no bummers. We didn't want any projects that felt depressing. Again, because to us, like fundraising in 2008, to me, it was like Jerry Lewis telethons and school bake drives and guilt, you know, Sally Struthers commercials. Fundraising was guilt or, or investment, yeah. right? And so we're trying to create this space of like, it's not, it's none of those things. It's actually like a, it's this positive way to spend money. It's it's a truly beneficial way to move money around. And so I think that discrete focus and and also just the fact that the three of us who started the company, we ourselves are creative people. Perry's an artist, I'm a writer, Charles is a graphic designer. We're not business people, we're not even technologists. We were like kind of the worst people to start a website, but the perfect people to start Kickstarter because it meant from the beginning we said, you know, we we're not trying to make this to sell out. We don't want to go public. Like the most meaningful thing, the most meaningful success would be if Kickstarter can be like the Green Bay Packers of the internet, where it's like this kind of public trust that does what it's supposed to do, that like fulfills its purpose, that is purely beneficial, that try, always tries to live up to this higher standard. And that as we just imagined, like having no idea whether anyone would care about our idea, uh, we were just very clear. We all we always saw at eye that like that's that's what it meant to succeed, um, and so I think all that like binds the company with the creative community that it serves. So I think those are all like positive feedback loops. Was there any one moment where it was like, oh yeah, now everybody's heard about us, so this is going to really take off? Like for instance, Amanda Palmer raising. I think she was the first one on the platform to raise over a million, uh, and I spoke with her about it actually shortly after. She raised the money, but I forgot what she was raising my oh, oh, for an album, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that kind of created some notoriety for her because her fans were like, oh, did you sell out? And she was like, no, this is what it costs to make an mm -hmm. album. Mm -hmm. But I think that kind of helped put Kickstarter a little, I mean, that was already around 2013 or that something. Was, yeah, but that was 20, that was 2012. Um, we, we launched in 2009 and then the start of 2012, um, the first project raised a million dollars, crossed the million dollar threshold in two did it in the same day and one was from double find adventure tim schaefer the video game maker and this is like the this is like the david lynch of video games like the cult classic guy who could never get a break here his first game in like 10 years um and it raises a million dollars in 24 hours and like wow. the whole internet is watching we are too like you ever the whole internet's refreshing kickstarter and like the site's taking you know 30 seconds to load because we hadn't planned for anything like this before and that that was in February, 2012. And um, I remember that day super clearly. And from that moment on, yeah, the there was just a different kind of trajectory. You know, we became the place where you could get a million dollars. You know, I think that the there started to be people coming to the site because they were interested in how much money could be gotten. You know, one of the reasons why projects did so well on Kickstarter is we're so thoughtful about governance and really, you know, tried to take care about the kinds of projects that were on the site. But then we came to realize later in that year that the amount of care we put into the platform made people trust it maybe more than they should. Um, and so during the midst of this like runaway period of just like so much money moving to the platform and we're still 30 employees. Um, and, you know, around that time we 
launched this set, these new rules called Kickstarter is not a store. And they were like very draconian, very draconian, set all these limits for product-related projects to make it so that they couldn't raise as much money so easily. We prohibited pho- photorealistic renderings, which people were so mad about. We By required- the way, I, I, I just want to say about that, I thought that was a key, key decision. Because if I, can ha- if I had an idea for a smart toilet and I made a photorealistic rendering and a description, that's a little too easy. Like, oh, I could just do Kickstarter project after Kickstarter project, raise a million, and then go off. But if I have to actually like find a man, you know, so, so what you do is instead of the photorealistic rendering, I have to actually make one and this is a real one. So that means I've manufactured it. I figured out all the nuanced issues about how to make this. I really understand the details of the full manufacturing process and how much it costs. Now I've got skin in the game as the content creator, as the creative. And if I just put up like a Photoshop thing, there's not enough skin in the game for even me, the creative person to take it seriously. So I thought that was a, a key decision. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it was, um, you know, we we just wanted to set a clear bar. You know, when I when we made this decision to ban photorealistic renderings, I called, I reached out to a lot of like top design people I knew in advertising and in schools who I who had helped educate me about like industrial design, the product world as this had been happening. And I told them about this idea to prohibit renderings. And they're like, that's crazy. They're like, that's all any advertising is. And I'm like, well, exactly. I think, I think maybe that's a problem. And I think in this case for Kickstarter, we don't want to be advertising. We want to be the site that's about making the thing, not selling it when it's over. That was always a clear distinction. We want to be about making. So we wanted to people to show the working prototype, like show the breadboard. Don't hide that stuff. Like this is a community that likes that, that will improve upon it. But you know, it's it's funny because there's you get into a lot of whack-a-mole with this because you have some creators don't want to show those things and they want to they want to be all sizzled because for whatever reasons they have. And then you get into this back and forth of governance of like asking people to edit their videos. Hey, can you take this out? Hey, can you could show more of this? And it's gets very granular um, and very intensive. And and the company still does all those things, still does those things for these projects that are um that are higher, that are more challenging in terms of governance. But, you know, it just shows me how there's not a lot of reward for that grind of moderation work on the internet. You know, you get a lot of people getting mad at you when you try to moderate them. Uh, It's very emotionally draining work to do. No one can do that for longer than a year or two without getting really burnt out. Because people, they're always going to push back and say, why did you tell me I have to take this down? It's this is censorship. What are you doing? Yeah, every conversation is emotionally fraught. And it, you take that home with you. How can you not? And the people that put up the steel wall, like they they end up crashing eventually too. And so, but like sites need that to not go to shit. And this is what's so hard is you have to have that that human layer to protect um, the, the essence, uh, the culture of a place. But yet with a global scale, the internet, everyone wanting in, especially when you're like a hot property, it becomes really exhausting. So we, you know, part of what I think about in those years after the million dollar projects, us instituting the new rules, is just like three plus years of just a lot of minute back and forths with creators who are, I'm sure many very well-meaning, but just getting into the weeds of like really hard stuff uh, to, yeah. So, so, I mean, there, there's also some great projects that Kickstarter funded. Uh, 
I myself am a big player of Cards Against Humanity with my kids. And uh, how much did that raise when it was uh, a Kickstarter project? That's a great card game. Just 10 grand. Yeah, card. That was Max Simpkin. That was in like 2010. I think that was maybe 700 people, 10 grand. I mean, Exploding Kitten started, Oculus started, you know, there's many Academy Award winners. What's the weirdest project that surprisingly made, raised money? Uh, The one I think about is a father and daughter in Atlanta did a project to conduct a squirrel census of their local park. Uh, And they raised like seven grand to do a squirrel census. And I have a poster of like the 87 squirrels of whatever Peachtree Park in Atlanta. Uh, that was just uh, bizarre, but yeah, and they I mean, did was, raise the money. They, yeah, they, they did. That no, was successful. It was successful. That was what I think. That's part of what was so surprising about it. And you know, I um, uh, what I really appreciate in the idea is how you winnowed it down to this niche of uh, only supporting artists and creatives. Like first, first there's the overall crowd investing or crowdfunding domain, which includes uh, investing, crowd investing. And then, so you, you got rid of that idea. Then you got rid of the kind of GoFundMe charity type idea because GoFundMe is fine for that and you don't want to be too many things to too many people. And then also, you know, another site is that almost reminds me of it, but it's different is Patreon. You're not a Patreon site. You're focused on funding for very specific projects, not an ongoing, hey, I'm going to be a patron of your podcast uh, sort of thing. So you really kind of, it's just like how PayPal, I feel, with Peter Thiel, first he was going to do all payment transactions and he kept whittling the idea down until it was just transactions between eBay users and then he built up from that. And so I think that's a very smart approach. Like where are you going to be the monopoly and then you build up from that? Yeah, and what what do you understand? I mean, I think part yeah. of it for us is that like the, you know, when we would talk to potential investors and this is between 2005 and 2009 trying to get started, you know, the type of person that we were working with, there was a name for at the time. It was called a starving artist. It was called a starving artist. And literally in these meetings, investors would say, potential investors would say, well, aren't they starving for a reason? Like, why, what's the business here? You know, like my kid, sure, my kid like wasted my money at art school. Like they're a starving artist. Why does he want to support them? So like there was this, the notion of like creative people that exist without outside of this narrow mainstream definition, we're just seen as worthless, truly worthless, because individually, none of them are going to produce, you know, that much money for somebody. And again, that is the only value that's being perceived here. Um, and instead, when you aggregate them, when you create communities of them, um, there's just this great flourishing. So now it's almost $5 billion that's changed hands on Kickstarter, you know, close to 200,000 creative projects funded. None of it like economically rational, you know, none of it, none of it like makes sense according to a lot of textbooks about what it means to change money. Um, but yet it's just, it is, it is such an open platform that just permits ideas to happen for whatever values and motivations someone has. And that's the secret of it is it just, it just says like money is just a fuel and whatever get causes you to share that money is, is correct. And like now go forth and do things, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting that people do want to support projects they love. There is community around creativity, not just around like, oh, message boards for stocks on Yahoo Finance or whatever. Now, I, I've had two, I've only, I always encourage people to launch projects on Kickstarter because like what you said earlier, to, to test to see if an idea is good. 
I've I've done only one project on Kickstarter and it was taken down almost immediately by I think it was taken down algorithmically by the Kickstarter. Uh and then also I in in fall of 2017 I actually visited uh Kickstarter in, in Brooklyn and I forgot the guy I met, but I had this idea. I, I own a among other things, I own a comedy club. And so I had this idea that comedians could kickstart uh their comedy specials and rather than waiting for Netflix to fund them or whatever. And then I thought to myself, well, wouldn't it be interesting if, you know, what what is Netflix, but really just a very highly trafficked website that now shows videos. That's like the new TV channel or bas basically all highly trafficked websites could be platforms for what used to be considered television shows. Like Uber had a little documentary directed by Spike Lee, for instance, on their website. And so I was thinking, oh, I, I was curious if Kickstarter could not only help these comedians get funding for their specials, but maybe even have like a channel because they're so popular to, to mon they could monetize and the comedians could monetize by showing their shows on Kickstarter, but wasn't part of your business model. So I understood that, but it was an interesting meeting. Yeah. The, the irony is that like, um, yeah, for ideas that could be business ideas, Kickstarter weirdly doesn't make sense because you just get a lot of people being like, well, why, why would I give that money? Like, I get that I would get a ticket eventually, but like, why? But it's funny. Um, it is more like it's funding things for altruism or because there is an, you know, just the end product inspires you in some way. But kind of anything that doesn't fall in those buckets is, is yeah, it just seems strange. It seems strange. Yeah. That's why software projects don't do that well. I'll tell you the, the one project I posted there that failed, but it was so interesting to me. And then I want to get go head first into your book. But the project was uh, I wanted to buy Greenland, and you know, remember like sure. Trump Trump tweeted, "Oh, I want to buy Greenland," and then Denmark, the Prime Minister of Denmark, tweeted, "Well, it's not for sale." And I'm thinking to myself, why are these world leaders tweeting about buying like this huge, massive land? And so I did some research and came up with some reasons. And I figured, well, you know what? I don't want any world leader to buy it. I want to buy it and kind of take care of it for the world. And so I, po I, I posted that I wanted to raise $100 million on Kickstarter. And I, gave, and I gave all the reasons why. And I gave awards like, oh, if you give $10, I'll make you a citizen. $100, I'll make you an earl. $1,000, I'll give you 100 acres of land. $10,000, you have your own national holiday. But anyway, Kickstarter, um, I, I hit post and Kickstarter immediately took it down. <laughs> Probably because I was asking for too much. Possibly, possibly there are there are checks for these sorts of things. Yes, and then but it was interesting because it was another it was a new way for me of posting an article in that format. It was like a weird format to post an article, and it got me experience doing a crowdfunding project, a tiny bit of experience. There, we had a period we had a period where we like we we embrace you know early on we embraced experimentation like that, but at a certain point like. You know, someone's done the joke a couple times, and then uh, you know, then you're like, how, how, how much can you play along with trolling before you're getting trolled? You know, what's that line? It's it's I, it's hard. It's I was hard, serious right? though. I wasn't trolling, but I <laughs> but I get it. I get yeah, it. That can yeah. be perceived as trolling. So so I really want to talk about your book. This could be our future: a manifesto for a more generous world. And uh, you basically talk about this idea that we were in an era of what you call financial maximalism, which is, is a, the idea that, Hey, if, um, the kind of Adam Smith idea from wealth of nations, that if you, uh, focus on profit first, that is the most moral 
thing you can do? Well, I would say, I, I think, so I would say, you know, it's that my definition is just that uh, I think for the last 50 years or so, we've run off of this like shorthand auto autopilot decision, uh, decision matrix where the, the right outcome in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. And that we're often in this position where there is a clear, maybe financial outcome on one path, the other path, a lesser financial outcome, but maybe a more pro-values outcome in other ways that feel emotionally positive, but are tough to defend in a business meeting. And that um, nine times out of 10, we choose the option that makes the most money. And, and the only option, the only time we choose the one that doesn't is really when there's a crisis and we feel like we have to apologize for something. Uh, but that is basically like how my my theory is that is essentially how the world has operated, um, yeah, since since the early 1970s. Right, and th- and that very much goes along with how you came up with the business model for Kickstarter because again, the what would have made the most profit is if you accepted all the charity stuff and the Patreon style model, maybe even flirted with the crowd investing and created this whole crowdfunding empire. Uh, and instead you just, you, you stayed in your lane, focused on what you, what you were interested in and what you thought would have the highest value for the community you came out of. And that worked like your, your longer term, I would almost say, and I'm curious what you think of this. Is it, is it more of a battle? Is it a battle of profit versus values or is it a battle of short-term thinking versus long-term thinking? Yeah, I think it's like the finite versus infinite game kind of idea of it is about, just staying relevant, staying meaningful, because the world in which you try to be the Walmart of crowdfunding and own everything, you will immediately begin poorly serving some markets. You'll create, you know, new opportunities for others to step in. But even if you manage to lock it down, like I think the world is worse off by that happening. A world in which companies are focusing deeply on just like artists and focusing deeply on the needs of another community and another community, I think that's what produces uh, the better outcome because then everyone gets to maximize for the local values that make sense for them. So for example, in GoFundMe, GoFundMe, there's no, um, all or nothing funding model. Everyone gets every dollar they can, which makes sense because it's a charitable website. But on Kickstarter, we always, we always thought all or nothing was so important because there's nothing worse as a creator than being stuck with like half a budget for something that you like want to execute at a certain level. So the notion that like it should only be full budgets that causes money to change hands on Kickstarter is something that you can only do when that's like a native product, thinking about the needs of that community. If you roll it all up, then you're just trying to say, how can we squeeze an extra 2% out of everything this month? So I feel like by, by taking that more narrow stance, it allows you to deliver more value. And I think that gives you the opportunity to last longer, uh, and especially when like the massive disruptions happen in life, as we're seeing right now, it is, it is the brands and the category that have, uh, meaning that create non-financial values with their customers that I think end up lasting. Like I, I, I was very, um, influenced by living in New York when, um, the, the music industry collapsed from digital music. And when I first moved to New York in 2000, there were record stores literally everywhere. And I would go spend money. I didn't have at all of them all the time. And then, and then digital music happens. And then all of a sudden the record stores start going out of business. The first ones to go out of business, HMV, you know, uh, Virgin tower, the big tower, chains, yeah. the big chains that by that point were just mass retailers that happened to sell records. 
the ones that lasted the longest were like other music, generation records, academy records, ones that were very specialized on niches because those were serving a purpose. They weren't just a store to buy things. They served a purpose for a community. They were a discovery zone. There were all kinds of things. And so the more that you can create that other sorts of value, uh, I think that creates long-term meaning that is critical in crises. That's like a North star during confusing moments, which every company is going to run through. Um, and ultimately like, we'll let your work be meaningful and not just like, we're trying to squeeze, we're trying to make some more money at the widget factory today. You know, when your job gets that abstracted, it's, it's, it's hard to get excited. Yeah. And so, so your point in the, in the, well, you kind of described this very interesting philosophy and I love the name and the philosophy of decision-making, which you call bentoism. And so a bento box is this traditional Japanese box, mothers would, instead of a lunch box, mothers in Japan would pack a bento box for their kids. It's got these four components of four different foods. And the idea of the bento box initially is that, and, and it, it corresponds to this other philosophy in, in Japan that you essentially should be, you should stop eating when you're 80% full. And so with the bento box, it's a little easier to stop eating uh, when you finish, let's say three of the four boxes. And uh, you use it as a decision-making matrix, which if, if, if you're kind of focusing on the right things in each box, and, and we'll discuss what those things are, if three of the four boxes suggest a decision, uh, then that's the decision you should make. And, I, and I'm skipping over the, what you're putting in the box, but I'll, I'll let you describe, because it's a very interesting way of making a decision rather than making a decision based purely on profit, also on how you feel at the core, how you see your future, how you see your relationships with others, and then and making a decision around that. Yeah, I mean, I you know, for me, like more than a decade working on Kickstarter as a co-founder, and then for four years as CEO, um, you know, just made me obsessed with decision making. You know how and like whether that's beating myself up over decisions that I questioned or agonizing over things and. And like always feeling like in this sort of self-examination uh, process, like getting better, doing a lot of navel-gazing, but ultimately getting better, but still feeling like, how do I, how do I help myself consistently make good, make good decisions? And, and, um, and so I ended up coming up with this tool. And, and it happened one day I was doodling in my notebook and I drew like a hockey stick graph, like a simple chart with an X and Y axis where the line is sloping up and to the right. And like in business, this is seen as the ultimate, you know, example of, you know, making it this success, the, the hockey stick graph. And I drawn this graph in my notebook. And then I just had this thought of like, don't both of these axes extend the X axis along the bottom, which measures time, it goes now as far into the future as you'd want it to. So on my little drawing, I extended that axis. And then I looked at this Y axis, which was measuring like your self-interest, power, money, whatever it was. And I just thought, well, Actually, doesn't your self-interest grow too? Because if I think about, say, the difference between being a solo entrepreneur and say Kickstarter becoming successful, like that was responsibility. Like there was, it went from me to us, right? There's just like a, another dimension of thought that happened there. So I extended that line too. And suddenly that little hockey stick graph was a two by two, where there are these four distinct boxes of self-interest. There was now me in the bottom left corner where the hockey stick graph is. That's what I want and need right now. This is how we see the world today. And the bottom right corner, there's future me, right? Future me thinking about 
the older, wiser version of myself that either becomes true or doesn't become true based on the decisions I make every single day. So, so can I can I ask yeah. a question? So, so now me an example might be, I'm broke and I need money to feed my family. That's I'm gonna make it. You know, if I'm just thinking in that box, our now I'll make me the decision needs, that feeds my family. Yeah, well, like our now me, we all have now me needs. Our now me needs are like the bottom two rows of Maslow's hierarchy. It's just like you need to feel safe, you need to feel secure. It's even just like I need to exercise every day. I need some sunshine. Whatever, whatever it is for you to feel like yourself. That's your now me. And everyone has that every day. And like most of our to-do lists and errands are, are now me needs. But the, the trick is though, is that that's just one dimension of ourselves. There's also this future me, which is like, what are we working towards? What is our purpose? Um, what is like the Obi-Wan Kenobi version of ourselves whispering to us to say, here's what matters. Like the, there's this obituary version of ourselves that we want to have happen, uh, that we have to live up to, we have to manifest. Um, and then in the top left of this two by two, there's now us. So now us is thinking about your friends, your family, your coworkers, whoever you have an emotional relationship with, whoever you feel accountable to and, and incorporating their needs. And then the top right, there is future us. Future us are those same people and you're now us just 30 years from now. It's your kids and their families, your grandkids, you know, a world different than the one that is today. And so the, the inside of, of, so I drew this graph and thought, wow, you know, every choice I make leaves a footprint in each of these spaces. It affects now me, it affects future me, it affects now us, it affects future us. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? 
answer to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldercher, would you like to apply to be VP of en entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. What's the difference between future us and future me? I was trying to keep track of the distinctions. For future me is, is purely, to me, that's like, that is literally the ultimate version of me. Like the... The, the version of me that is like a 10 out of 10 on every decision, like that person, that person that like is wise, mm -hmm. that person that's generous, that person that's loving, that is like a, 
a personal bullseye that I'm working towards. And using the bento has let me identify, like write down what those values are for me. The future us is thinking, it's thinking about everybody else. When I Future us is my kids, the, the world they'll have. Like my future me goals are always about, it's like self-development, it's reading, it's learning, it's like developing a practice. My future us goals are, are more like, you know, it's something more like activism uh, or, or more like thinking about um, how the projects I'm working on might, might have a, a longer term impact. So for example, um, after my book came out, I got stuck in the trap of like looking for positive affirmation on the internet about it and myself. And I was just refreshing Twitter, looking for, you know, all the, all the things you look for in those moments. And I had this realizing I was just debilitating myself with this obsession. And I, I thought I need to draw this bento. I need to draw the four boxes of the bento to like break this loop. And so I drew a blank bento. And at the top I wrote, how should I use my energy? And then now me box of my bento um, says self-promote, do a live stream, like do a sweepstakes, yeah. whatever you have to do to get attention, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. It was like flashing neon. When I asked my future me voice what it thought I should do, it said, hey, you should read this book you keep meaning to read that you know is going to like deepen your understanding of this thing you're trying to write about. You know, my now us tells me like, you're going to be with your family today. Like that's totally value positive time. Why are you thinking about this book thing? And then future us, future us said, you know, you wrote the book because you wanted to talk about bentoism and you wanted to evolve how we think about self-interest. Why are you obsessing over something that's already over? The book is done. Like there's this larger project to work on. Like you're taking your eye off the ball. And so I use this simple exercise of letting each of these voices speak to like make my to-do list each week, to hold myself accountable, to make sure I'm not getting stuck in these like selfish loops. Um, and I even think about the design of my days in such a way where I'm trying to do something that satisfies each of those spaces. So like mm -hmm. I could be a workaholic, right? And so I can think of my social time as like an airport layover. It's like a non-time. I'm just waiting to get back to work. But yet looking at it this way, you know, I've made like calling a friend every single day, a different friend every day on the phone is like a must have on my to-do list every single day because I know when I do that, I feel idea. better. I feel better. And so I've like, I'm more, I'm more consciously uh, designing my time. And, and, but my belief is that all of us have all four of these spaces. We all have now me, future me, now us, future us. Most of us operate with a kind of passive awareness where all we really see is now me. We're acting like with 48 hours of you know, vision ahead of us. But to develop an active awareness means to, to, to understand all those places, to make choices knowing, knowing your ultimate goals, thinking about other people, doing that consistently. And, and I believe that, that that sort of transformational shift and how we define self-interest from just being about our immediate self-interested needs to being instead just this slightly larger perimeter. It's only slightly larger. And I would argue that it's absolutely reflective of the truth of our lives. Uh, and that once you do that, I think, I think the world opens up because a, a world driven only on now me thinking, that's like the world before Kickstarter. That is creative projects before Kickstarter. I'll fund your project if it helps me. But what Kickstarter does is it opens up all those other spaces to why something is worth existing. Why do it? Well, the now us of like the community likes it. Why do it? Well, the future us, it's cool tech. Like, yeah, it's not practical now, but we should totally fund these things. Why do this future me project? Well, this person's been working on it for 20 years. We should give them money. Like this is, this is awesome, right? And so it's just 
opens up the valid and rational reasons for action. And it opens up new dimensions of metrics. Um, and so I think that this, this shift of very near-term, selfish uh, definition of self-interest, that, that that is the limitation of today that we find so hard to see, um, but that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, I think is going to be so normal how people see their place in the world. And I think it's going to allow us to finally collaborate to make collective decisions uh, in, in a much better way than we do today. So it's almost like two different styles of decision-making in Bentoism. One is, like you say, when you when you outline your day, it's almost like what are little goals you can do that satisfy each of the four boxes? You know, now me, now us, future us, future me. But then there's also this idea, and you have many examples in the book where, okay, should should the small ad agency work for the big companies or the small companies? Uh, you know, three, she covered, the, the person you mentioned covers three out of the four boxes. And even the now me, she was able to focus it in a certain way by thinking in this way, but three out of four of the boxes kind of suggested that the decision should be a yes or no, whatever it was. And so it's like two types of decision-making. One is how can I satisfy everything throughout the day, even if it's one at a time or, or throughout a year or throughout a life. And the other is here's a specific decision I have to make yes or no on. It doesn't satisfy three or four out of the four boxes. Yeah, and I think the the larger, the even the layer above that, and what I think is so critical is that it creates coherence between your actions and your values, and coherence on a continuous basis. So my my experience as a CEO um, taught me that the having an idea about where you want to go is trivially easy. Getting people to get there together is extraordinarily difficult. And you end up getting in a place where a leader will micromanage or a leader won't properly articulate the destination. And you just get into these hard, hard positions if you're not making progress. Mm. Um, and what you really want, what I always wanted as a leader, and I tried many different ways to develop it, um, and I think never as successfully as Bentoism, which I didn't have while I was leading Kickstarter, uh, but how can you give everyone the same compass to where everyone's making decisions from the same perspective? And so how I'm using the Bento now, and I'm, I'm advising several companies on this, is using this to identify your goals as an organization and empowering everyone in the org to make a decision using it. So if you think about the Bento in a corporate context, then every company's now me is like their, whatever this year's KPIs are. Here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to grow 10%. Okay, that's your now me goal. Everyone clear on that? Great. Uh, the company's future me goal, remember the future me is like the best possible version of you. So the company's future me is its brand promise. Its brand promise, which the company will probably never fully live up to, but hopefully like spiritually lives up to at least. But like, you know, it's Apple's brand promises think different, right? It's like Apple products are always going to think differently than other things. So that's something you, you always expect from them. So that's the future me of a company. The now us of a company, that's like its relationships. That's where a company has to identify who are its core constituents and what is that promise we're making to them? What expectation do they have? So for Apple, their customers, they expect Apple to be pro-privacy. They expect Apple to be a just works technology. You know, developers expect Apple to be a walled garden. You know, there, there are certain sort of expectations Apple has set. 
um, that's different from what other company, out, companies' other expectations might have. And then the, the future us for a company is its vision. And for every company, its vision is like a world where they are more powerful and successful than they are today for various reasons. But so for a company, they could identify these. They could write in their now me, here's our goal for this year. They could write in the future me, our brand promise is this. They would write in their now us, our core constituents are these three groups. Here's what they expect from us, these three things. Our future us is this vision statement. They could hand that to their employees and they could say, every decision we make needs to satisfy all these conditions. Needs to so satisfy what, them. Needs to hold, needs to successfully hold that tension of like the brand promise with the customer promise. And products that do that successfully, like an Apple product that just works and thinks different is like has a chance to succeed because it feels, it quote unquote feels Apple. Um, and so by identifying what are those like core poles that always must be true, that you have to successfully hold that tension between, that's the difference between projects or products that work and that don't work for, for an organization. So how do you, this all assumes somebody has core values. And now I'm not saying if, if, if you're without core values, I'm not saying you're immoral or anything. You just never, maybe never sat down and thought about, Hey, what, what is future me that I'm aiming for? I've been so much just trying to survive. And now here in this quarantine, I was just fired and I got to do, do this. How do you, how do you, like you're used to coming up with core values. You're a writer and you brought that into uh, your definition of Kickstarter and your definition of how you, how you ran it. How does someone who's hasn't built that muscle exercise it and build it? Yeah. I mean, well, muscle is the right word. Um, I mean, it, I think for most people, it has to start with a recognition that that space matters. You know, for a lot of people, there's a life moment. Maybe it's having a family. Maybe it's something bad happening. Your plan's not going as expected. But for a lot of folks, there's a, a moment of reckoning where kind of the autopilot that they were on doesn't work anymore. And now in this crisis, it's that for everybody. So a lot of people yeah. are having to do a lot of internal confrontation. Uh, so I think it really starts with desire. And, I, and it's amazing the, the amount of people I speak to who have a strong desire to develop this part of themselves who never cared before in their lives, but maybe reach a point where they realize, wait, I'm deficient. Like I, I maybe I'm, 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 I have wealth, success, but in other ways I'm not. Um, so it's just a practice. And so I, um, I've been teaching people in a couple of ways. So I've been doing regular workshops uh, uh, in people's living rooms and we could still do that kind of thing. And then online where I guide people through a process of building out their bentos. Like I ask sort of leading questions to get them to brainstorm and to write down, you know, what, what is at the heart of your relationships? Are you, uh, are you the shoulder to cry on? Are you, do you give good advice? Do you like do adventurous things together? You know, what, what kind of person are you? And, and being clear on those things, because it's like, if you're the good time friend, your friends aren't expecting you to be like the shoulder to cry on friend. You don't have to be everything, but people expect us to like live up to the essence of who we are. So that's why we need to know these things. We need to know these things about ourselves. But I just guide people through a, a, a discovery process. They get paired with a stranger. You have to mirror and share with one another, which is really amazing. Um, and then I've also started a a weekly practice that I do on Sundays that's just 20 minutes. Um, it's something I was already doing where I described that journaling exercise where I write into a blank bento, like, what do I want to do this week? I started doing that. I've done that every week now for like six months, and it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, and so after COVID, I thought, well, I'm doing this at like the same time every Sunday morning anyway. Why not like turn on a Zoom screen and just let journal together? We could just silently journal together. 
Uh, so I've been doing that. And so that, um, you know, that's like, you know, like 50 people or so coming together. And that's I, great. And I lead us through a simple exercise, but the whole idea is just like, let's just get comfortable with these different places. Like to think about your now us, I say, think about everybody that's important to you in your life, cram them all in that sectional, get your pets in there too. Now take a Polaroid. And like, and now let's spend a minute with our eyes closed, like looking at each of those faces and just feel the warmth of them, you know, just experience them. And it's especially important to do that now when it's so much harder to do that. But just try to let people be in touch with these things because we all have these spaces. This is like, this is real stuff. It's just stuff that we have struggled to uh, articulate that has just felt less real. Uh, but for all kinds of reasons, I think that uh, our collective, our collective needs are going to be more and more important. And then the future, you know, the the future planning is, um, we've been treating that as, as uh, a nice to have these past 30 years or so. And boy, are we paying the price. Um, so I think those are things that are really going to shift our focus from short-termism to long-termism and, and individualism to collectivism. I think those are all swings that are, that are about to happen. And just just so I further understand um, everything, so I'm gonna, I'm going to try this exercise also of setting my goals for the week using the the bento box when uh, or or using bentoism. When does the future me differ from future us? So I can imagine maybe if um if future me is very hermit like and just wants to be outside with my loved ones and that's it. But maybe future us, I want to see the world I live in better. Maybe there's kind of differing decisions that could happen there. I mean, I'm looking, so I just turned to the one, I have my notebook in front of me. So I looked at my bento from a couple of days ago. Um, so my future me is like, read this book, how to measure anything that a friend of mine suggested I read. Um, uh, about to do a trip and be in the right headspace for this trip I have to do. Um, but my future us is like, um, set a good example for my child by being present, you know, by being a good teacher to him, um, keep flattening the curve, like keep in mind, like these larger things that I'm, larger things are supposed to be contributing to. Um, I mean, it's really just a, a line between to me, the future me is still quite selfish. It's just sort of like, they're just longer term projects. Um, you know, now my now me is just like, it's just all, it's my to-do list. And my now us is a list of like, here are five friends that I, I want to talk to this week. I haven't, you know, I, tr I kind of talk to everybody every three weeks or so now, some people more often, but I'm like, all right, who do I need to hit up? And, um, and it's just, a, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just a means of personal accountability. And, and the way I think about it is just that like, you know, we know what flow states are when it comes to music or being in nature or exercise or dancing or drugs or like these various ways we can reach a flow state. Um, but what does it mean to be in a flow state on a Tuesday at four o'clock in the afternoon? You know, when there's nothing inspiring happening around you, how do you know what it means? This to, podcast is inspiring be, me. Yes. What does it mean to be in integrity with who you are? And it's possible. It's possible. Of course it's possible. It requires self-awareness. Self-awareness that doesn't have to be, you know, frou-frou or scary or BS, you know, self-awareness that's like very, very rationally driven of just like, you want to be better at things that are important. Um, and, and to try to get us closer to that, that state of, of, of coherence. I mean, a way, a way I've been talking about it recently is just that when there's, um, 
when there's an alien invasion, you know, everybody runs from the aliens. Uh, most people are running from the aliens, but a small number of people, normally Tom Cruise, are running towards <laughs> something with a plan. So like, how do you be Tom Cruise? You know, most people, the extras in the movie, they all have the passive awareness of they're just thinking, now me, get away. Tom Cruise has the full bento active awareness if he's thinking about future me. He's thinking about now us. He's thinking about future us. He, he is fully cognizant. He is turned on at that moment. Um, you know, the, the passive response to uh, COVID is maybe it's like buying toilet paper. The active response is buying a bidet. You're solving it not just for now, but for all future states. Um, but so this ability to see that full space, to affect the future, to extend your perimeter farther along so that you can shape things before they reach you, um, these are all ways that uh, that I have just personally felt myself develop. And then I think a bentoist type of approach um, can really bring value to people. And so I want to ask you about one of the examples in the book, because it feels like in the book, there might be a disconnect between the, the profit motive, which is this financial maximalism, and taking a more values-oriented, collectivist, you know, bentoist approach. And you give a great example of Adele. So Adele has these concerts, and when you, she puts tickets up for sale, people who are in the scalping business buy all the tickets in the first three seconds and then scalp the tickets on, you know, either outside the venue or online or whatever. And so her true fans don't get to see her unless they pay an enormous amount of money from the scalpers. And so she figured out a way to identify who her, you know, biggest fans were so she could reward them by making sure they did get tickets at the normal price and they weren't essentially cheated by the scalpers. And your, your point was, is that she's thinking about, you know, her, her future me, which is her personal brand say, and how she wants her fans to, to think of her in the future. And she's thinking about her now us, which is the fans and how she can do something that benefits them. And then future us, which is just that here's how music, the, the scalping is unfair for the music industry in general. And then perhaps the music industry would, would have more loyal followings and would grow better if, you know, this approach was taken by everyone. And as opposed to just the pure profit motive of maximizing the amount of dollars created uh, by her concert. And then, and then the, the fans being the people who spend the most money on her. And my, my feeling was when I read that was that a, she did a great thing. And that's, that's kind of shows, again, it was a great example to show the success of your approach, this bentoist approach, but B to me, it struck me that she's also maximizing her profit because she, it, as long as she stays consistent with her personal view of, you know, her view of herself and her loyalty to her fans, that ultimately makes the fans more and more loyal. It creates word of mouth about her so that people know that she's the artist to go see. She, they know they won't get ripped off if they see her in concert. And ultimately in the long run, again, that's why I say it's short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. In the long run, she's probably going to make more money or her fans are more likely to buy her album the second it's released because they're loyal to her. They're part of her family. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's very well could be true. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm definitely not arguing that people should be selfless. You know, I still think, um, I still think we are driven by selfishness uh, and that that is like trusting people to operate according to their self-interest is fine. Um, it's just that there's a, 
If you're only optimizing for one space, then I think you you leave a lot of value on the table. You capture you probably capture more value than you create. It might be a net negative transaction. Like if you imagine smoking, smoking is a positive now me behavior because it satisfies a craving for nicotine. Your now me as a smoker is always going to want to smoke, even though every other space of your bento is telling you to quit. But the now me says, this is rational. I desire nicotine. I'm being delivered nicotine. So it, it's that... It's that we could be selfish, but like a broader notion of selfishness will bring different sorts of results. So I think Adele here is not. It might not even be considered selfish. She might say, it's, maybe she doesn't calculate, oh, if I just, if I do the best thing for the fans here, I'm going to make the most money. It might not be so calculated. It just might work out that by thinking in this bent, bento box fashion, that without being selfish in terms of what she's thinking, Without being selfish, she's still going to maximize profit. In fact, she might even, this this bento box style of thinking, she'll make more profit. Just like your Apple description earlier. Yeah. If Apple suddenly made an Android-like phone, which was sort of like, you know, open source the platform, sell it to different, you know, phone companies and, and so on, probably their fans are going to be like, oh, Apple just lost the only thing I liked about them. I'm switching to Android now anyway. So, so if Apple... Apple, as long as they stay true to these higher values, they basically maintain their profits or grow their profits as opposed yeah. to if they took a short-term profit incentive to spike this year's profits, they might lose in the long term. Absolutely, because what we fail to see is that decisions driven by short-term profits might not be truthful to who we are. They might be false to who we are as a brand or who we are as a person. And people get into these desperate trades, right? We have desperate moments in life where we do, we, we do have to give up something that we care about. But um, the danger of the short-termism is that it is destructive. It, is, it can be destructive to trust to those longer-term needs. And, and under a, under a short-termist view, it's a limited set of things that make sense stockpiling PPE makes no sense from a profit-maximizing short-term view. I mean, I, I love Mark Andreessen's essay about it's time to build and we should have done all these things, but like, how would he have rationalized uh, stock stockpiling goods when like he is a venture capitalist who's looking to maximize financial returns? How, how would he have justified that? Of course, he would said, well, there's this other value that's important. Okay, well then, where else is that value important? What And what other ways are we not getting to that because it is in competition with a financial motive? And 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 my belief is that it's this very limited definition of self-interest that only considers now me that produces these, that saves us from having these harder conversations and that allows us to believe that we can earn ourselves uh, through any crisis. Um, yeah. So, so like I, I have, I have, some questions. Let's say you're Apple and let's say one year you uh, focused on the now me and you said, oh, if we sold, if we licensed our operating system to every phone maker, then we'll spike in market share the first year. And then that's all I care about because my bonus is just based on this year. If I'm like the CEO or whatever. And let's say you do that. And now year two, your brand is fractured you kind of sense a little bit more grumbling on message boards across the internet. There's a danger, you know, business could fall, market share could fall because of what you did. How do you repair, how do you repair a broken bento box? Yeah, well, I mean, great question. I mean, we saw, we saw Steve Jobs do it, you know, in the earlier Apple era. And I think we just saw Satya Nadella just do it with Microsoft. 
where you have to kill things that don't make sense. Um, you have to create coherence. You know, everything you do has to live up to a core thesis about what you do. If you're like, our job is this, with the exception of these other four things, these special projects that get run because, you know, they got hired early and they get a special team and they have to be on the executive level and all the weird ways you can torture yourself um, as an organization, yeah, you're just going to be less effective. People aren't going to believe you. You know, people aren't going to care. It's but it's hard. It's hard to be coherent in that way. I mean, who's good at social media? People that know how to hit the same note over and over again in slightly different ways. Like the 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 well-rounded person who has nuanced takes about everything is less interesting because uh, you just sort of like, I want to fill my sl the slot of like the angry sports person I follow or of the jaded, you know, book critic or whatever. There's just like types that we go for. Um, these essences uh, that you know, that we just kind of expect different places to fill. And this is where the notion of like pluralism is so exciting because we compete with one another. There's this great quote I have in the afterword from um, Blaise Pascal, the French like mathematician about how the, 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 the intelligent compete against the strong and the beauty, the beautiful compete against the witty and, and everyone's trying to like win in this overall game rather than recognizing that they're all part of separate games and that they actually have nothing to fear from one another and that the world benefits from all of their existence and that they're all fulfilling individual values and goals that are important and critical on their own. And that if they could merely just be happy with the critical value they provide, like the world would be fine. But yet we foolishly, like the strong, the strong wants to lead in the kingdom of the wise, when in reality, there are sort of like rightful values and ways of thinking that 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 govern our choices. This is like the the operating system of 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 society of culture. Um, that's like you know the the thousands of years of our our evolution. Um, so I think it's just it's 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 trying to honor those things. It's 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 honoring the truth of them. Um, and and I think that in particular technological management or technological measurement, as in the case with Adele, where Adele has an algorithm to help her identify a quote loyal fan. I think technological measurement is going to allow us to approximate moral values and different distributions of goods and services than have, we've really seen in a very long time. And I think things are going to get weird for a while. Um, and, and that we're on the cusp of this. Yeah, what do you think will happen? Do you think? Well, I think like there, I, I saw an interesting example last week where there's a new video game that uh, is available to people that watch certain number of hours of Twitch streams, right? There's like deal, there's extra content. You can't buy it but it's about like this time given kind of metric instead. Um, I think that the, the, the COVID crisis is gonna produce extreme wealth scarcity for so many people uh, and then extreme like wealth abundance for other people. And that weirdly the midpoint between these two groups is gonna be this notion of new values. Because if you're someone that um, doesn't have money, you will still need goods and services. You will still need a way, of, a means of exchange Right now, if you don't have money, like what, how do you pay for things? You pay for things with your time. You watch pre-roll ads on YouTube, things like that. Someone who has money pays the $10 a month to not get it. Um, but we're going to find new ways for people to pay for things. Uh, so I, I, I'm imagining this way that like people without money are going to want access to goods and services. People that make those goods and services are going to want a wide enough audience that they're going to extend membership to people who cannot literally afford it. And then people who have money 
are going to invest themselves and also in the growth of non-financial values because just growing more money is going to seem boring and not interesting. It's not going to be an interesting challenge anymore. So I think we're going to come to this midpoint of, um, of what I would call post-capitalism, which is building, growing values on top of financial value. It, it, this is not a world where like capitalism goes away, it gets curb stomped, like capitalism remains dominant. And it just became it remains become so dominant that other people start building things on top of it. So uh, Adele running concerts in a way that makes her enough money, but also is maximizing for another value on top of that, I think is going to be the new kind of transaction where there's like a financial outcome and a non-financial outcome. And we're going to become very sophisticated about how those things get get dialed and coded. Was there ever a point where afterwards you thought, boy, I really messed up in terms of, I did the now me, but I didn't think of the other three boxes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, uh, yeah. So so one of the ways I um, make a living is um, is that I do talks for, for companies. And, uh, and sometimes I get asked to do talks uh, by companies that I don't really like. And, and I've always said no to those things. I have this instinctual, um, sort of revulsion to that. And I even feel kind of like pissed off or even being invited for some reason. Um, but not long after um, making a, coming up with the bento, I got asked to do one of these. And before saying no, I thought, you know, I should ask my bento what it says. And so I've gone through the process before of identifying my core value in each, in each space. So I'll tell you what those are as I walk you through this decision. So I asked my bento, should I do a talk for a company I don't like? And I asked my now me box and my now me core value after doing these exercises I've designed, my now me value is to show people the matrix. When am I at my best? It's when I'm talking about ideas, connecting different puzzle pieces together, helping people see the world in a new way. That's like, I think what most make, makes me most distinctly me. Uh, so when I asked my now me voice, should I do a talk for a company I don't like? The now me voice said, yeah, totally do it, yes. Then I asked my now us voice. Now my now us is about deep time with friends and family. I'm like hyper-focused, hyper-present. I'm terrible, like texting, phone, but I'm great in person. When I asked that voice, do I want to do a talk for an hour and a half? It said, sure, this seems like, this is cool. This is what we like to do. Then I asked my future us voice. My future us, uh, its value is to build a better matrix. I'm not saying I want to get rid of the matrix. I'm saying, how can we make a world where the defaults sort of are more positive in how they affect us? So my future us voice, which wants to build a better matrix, says, yo, you should definitely talk for these people. Like, this, these are the people that are going to reform and lead this change. Like, you shouldn't be preaching to the choir. So I got in three yeses, and then I got to this future me voice. And my future me value is don't sell out. When I first went through this exercise, this notion of always being true to my values and especially never letting money come before my values, like they rang very true to me. This, this comes from growing up an evangelical Christian, being into punk rock, growing up poor. A lot of this is like affects, you know, just the way I think about this. And so when that future me voice said, should I do this talk for a company I don't like? It said, no, you're just selling out. And suddenly that voice that had been angry in the past that had told me no, I, I saw it. I could see it for what it was. And I realized it was my future me. And then my future me was like a bouncer looking out for my values, this big dude standing outside. And I, I could go and I could tap him on the shoulder and say, no, no, it's cool. I got this. Uh, but I could only do that because I could see this bigger picture. I had the active awareness to see that 
actually for these three other parts of myself, this totally makes sense. And actually this is something I should do. So in that case, I made a 180 degree different decision than what I normally would have done. And I like felt good about it. I didn't feel weird about it. I thought I am actually making a choice and integrity with who I am, even though it's the opposite of what I thought I would have done this morning. That's, that, that's really interesting. That's also a great example of when future me doesn't necessarily agree with future us. Yeah, definitely. Because, yeah. because you could change the world talking to the company you don't like, but it still could feel like selling out and you kind of use this, the, the, the bento approach to moderate between those two disparate feelings. Yeah. My, my feeling is that, and especially having taught this to, you know, over a thousand people at this point is, um, we all, we, we have these internal dialogues all the time. Like, um, there's a post I'll do soon that shows how we can use the bento to illustrate like sacrifice or to illustrate short-termism or to illustrate like how we get stuck in different kinds of decisions. Um, so by like being able to distinguish the voices a little bit more and, and each let them have their say, uh, I think you give yourself more agency um, to act. You know, we, we can get trapped by our emotions. We can get trapped by our mental patterns, our loops that we go through. Um, I'm a very self-critical person, right? I can get trapped in those kinds of things. And so for me, I just think like, if, I, if I'm going to love myself, if I'm going to care for myself, if I'm going to try to make sure I'm as effective as I want to be, then I need to give myself a tool. I need help. You know, I'm not strong enough to like always think about the future the way I know I should. I'm not good enough at thinking about other people for who I say I want to be. So I need help. I need a tool, just like I need a tool to, to do anything else. And so I really approach this as like, a, I'm just trying to step up as a human being um, and, and try to be a, you know, just to, to really maximize is such a funny word to use considering what my book is about, but really just to live up to, to my potential. And, and right, it's, that, a, it's a different kind of maximize. Like, yeah, you, yeah. again, it's, 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 it's kind of a way here, here's how I view this because I'm, I know, I don't know if people say this, but I'm going to do it. I love, love this approach. I'm going to make decisions using this bento idea. And the way I see it is this is a way to kind of bridge that gap between short-term thinking and long-term thinking, because otherwise it's a methodology. It's the steps you could take to, to get the long-term picture in better perspective and how your decisions uh, fall into that, you know, between short-term and long-term. I mean, I had this, you know, I, I came up with this idea, the bento idea, you know, maybe almost three years ago. Um, and shortly afterwards, I asked a friend who hosts some salons in Los Angeles where I was living, um, hey, can I like, I want to share an idea with a group of people in, in person? Because I just wanted to try saying this out loud and see whether I would throw up and to see like what, what people's faces would say. And, um, and I could just see that it made sense to people, that it was meaningful. And afterwards, this like very macho Italian guy slapped me on the back and said, you got some balls, kid, which I was like, whoa, whoa, what am I doing here? Um, but I, but, you know, shortly after that, I, I started trying to make bentos for various people. So I made Apple's bento, you know, I tried making Donald Trump's bento, but like, how, how do these people think? And, um, and I had this interesting experience if I, I imagine, let, let me do a bento for like uh, someone who's a racist or someone who's a, you know, extreme nationalist or a jihadist, like what does their bento look like? And, and I, you know, not that I can put myself exactly in those shoes, but what came out is like, 
you know, hatred. What comes out is like all the things that they believe in. And I was felt really bummed because I thought I wanted the bento to like make us all virtuous. And, and instead, when I saw that actually this could make someone more effective at a ideology I disagree with, um, I really had to think about that for a while and whether I felt, you know, is that, is that okay, quote unquote, okay. And eventually I came to think, actually, this is great because it means I, I'm not imposing any value system on anybody. All I'm, all I'm doing is trying to create a, a basic scaffolding to, to let you make sense of what's already happening inside of you. And well, also it's a, it's a great exercise to understand other people. So Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's number two guy, he has this technique he calls invert, which is that you can't argue against somebody until you can take their side of the argument even better than they can. And so I think when you do the bento for these other people, you're, you're allowing yourself to build a big picture perspective of whatever insanity they believe in and maybe find kind of where there might be a sane strain in it that is, is the, this weird, skewed, bigger picture. And then you can suddenly argue their side better than they can. Yeah. I, I love I love the idea of Charlie Munger as Warren Buffett's number two. Like still at ninety six or whatever you're here. Yeah. It's, it's like it's 120. The same, it's the same way I think of um Ron Wood as being not a real Rolling Stone, even though he's been in right. the band since nineteen sixty nine, you know. Right. But somehow he's not real. Uh but anyway. Anyway. It's true though, like uh Buffett's worth like, I don't know, eighty billion and Munger is about only about two billion, something like that. So, you know. We know kind who of, buys the Dairy Queen milkshakes. When right, they right, out. when they go out. Well, uh, Yancey, Yancey Strickler, uh, founder of Kickstarter, CEO, former CEO of Kickstarter, uh, one of my favorite sites to just browse around. But more importantly, the discussion of this podcast was about Bentoism, which you described in your book, This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. And I love the... Um, you know, you're the people you have on the back, Adam Grant, Seth Godin, Amanda Palmer. This is like, this is like a who's who of people who have been on my podcast several times. So, uh, uh, it was, it was a natural fit. And I, and, and I love this strategy. Can I, can I write, write about your strategy? I'll always refer to you in your book. Please. I want, you know, my, my dream is that it's just helping people left and right. And, you know, and I would say there's, um, bentoism.org. Um, you can go and there's a simple tutorial that will like teach you how to build your bento. And then these weekly bento things I do are open to anybody. And if you just go to bit.ly slash weekly bento, bit.ly like the shortened URL, bit.ly slash weekly bento, you can just drop your email address and you'll know when they're happening. Yeah. And your email list, you can sign up on, uh, on your said the bentoist.org site. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, Yancy, thanks so much. Mm -hmm. 